In the last podcast, I talked to you about God, more on the philosophical level. Now it's good for us to go to the practical side. And the practical side is yoga. It's the goal of every single sentient being to evolve upward and attain union with God. Evolution at the beginning phase takes place absolutely naturally without even our awareness as we move from the very simple lower forms of life up into the higher forms. Then as a human being, we eventually come to a level in which we have the capacity to take charge of our own evolution. And then we begin to evolve ourselves, and therefore can accomplish in one life what is taken hundreds if not thousands of lives beforehand. And yoga itself is the means of this self-evolution that will culminate in conscious and perfect union with God. So it's good for us to consider God in that perspective. And we will do that by looking into the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, which are also called the Yoga Darshana, because yoga is actually a philosophy as well as a practice. In Indian philosophy, there are six divisions. That is, six systems of philosophy. All of them are true, but a person operates within the context of the one that is most compatible with his own present state, with what in Sanskrit we call karma and samskara. Yoga is not an independent system of philosophy, but is based upon another system known as Sankhya. Now this is very, very important. The Sankhya philosophy is not only the basis of yoga. The Sankhya philosophy is the original philosophy of India. Before any of the other philosophies arose, Sankhya existed. Sankhya, therefore, is the philosophical system of the great rishis of India, and it particularly is the basis for the Bhagavad Gita. In fact, in the Bhagavad Gita, Sankhya is mentioned about half a dozen times. No other system. And this is important because Sankhya is very much based on the idea of practical application, not just an explanation of the nature of things and how things got here uh, and so forth. So the Yoga Sutras are based on Sankhya. They were written by the great sage Patanjali. Patanjali was a member of the order that are called not yogis. And this is in the spiritual lineage of Goraknath, who was absolutely the greatest yogi in Indian history. Although in contemporary times, he is not nearly as known as he used to be, and in the West, he's basically not known. 
Jesus was also a member of the Yogis and was in that tradition, according to their own history book, which is called Natanamavali. Anyway, back to Patanjali. In the very first section of the Yoga Sutras, the section called the Samadhi Bhada, the 24th verse now begins telling us about God. And here is what it says. Ishwara is a particular Purusha who is untouched by the afflictions of life, by actions, and by the results and impressions produced by actions. Ishwara simply means the Lord. The transcendental being beyond all relativity, beyond all creation, we call Brahman or Parabrahman. This is the absolute, absolute transcendent being. But God is also eminent in creation and in creation, we refer to God as Ishwara, the Lord. Ishwara is both the substratum of the creation and is inherent in every atom of creation and is the guide of creation, the projector and the guide of creation. Now, this Ishwara is a particular person. The word Purusha is used. Not just a spirit, but Purusha. So we understand this is the personal God as contrasted with the impersonal aspect of God, the absolute. God is not a conglomerate or, uh, what you say, just the embodiment of everything that exists, but is a real independent spirit. Who can be pointed out? that is, by the God realized, and of which it can be said, that and that alone is God. He is untouched by any faults. Therefore, the idea God could be angry or even pleased or jealous or <laughs> impatient is absurd because he is a person but he does not possess a personality like you and I do because the personality is created through life after life by the conditionings, the very thing the final phrase says, the results and impressions produced by actions. And of course, he's not, un he's not touched by action. Obviously, karma. God does not have karma. This is very much emphasized in the Bhagavad Gita. God, uh, Krishna says, speaking as God, I am untouched by all these things. Everything is contained in me, but I am not contained in them. And I exist apart from them. Therefore, to speak of God in any of these terms is an absurdity. Next, in the 25th verse, Patanjali says about Ishwara, in him is the highest limit of omniscience. Well, of course, I mean, even as children in esoteric religion, we were told God is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. So why does Patanjali bother to tell us this? It's because we can share in the omniscience, 
the omnipotence and the omnipresence of Ishwara. Therefore, Swami Vivekananda translates this sutra, in him becomes infinite that all-knowingness which in others is only a germ. Because we are parts of God, we're not the totality of God. But we're identical with God in our essential being, and therefore we have a touch of these, of these qualities. And by uniting with God, the, this simple touch unites with the original, the archetypal faculty, and becomes infinite. Although we, of course, will never be infinite. We can share in the infinite consciousness of God. And this is a product of evolution. And this is why we have religion even. And this is why we have yoga. Because although our pure self is absolutely perfect and unchangeable, we are living in a changing, evolving world. Why? Because we too are wrapped in prakriti, in subtle creative energy, just as God, Ishwara, has embodied himself in the energy of the world, and the world is evolving, and we are evolving along with it. That is, our power being is evolving, because it's through the evolution of that energy being that we will be able to participate in the infinity of God. Now we come to a very interesting verse in Patanjali. A verse that, if it was paid attention to, would be controversial in the modern world, or rather, rather we might say the modern yoga world. But because it isn't, because it's passed over and sometimes even mistranslated by people who have a particular idea, they want to bend Patanjali's words into accommodating. But here it is, the 26th verse. And remember, this is Patanjali. This is not Swami Nirvana Giri. All right, verse 26. Being unconditioned by time, he is guru even of the ancients. Ishwara is the guru of the universe. Ishwara is the guru of every conscious being within the universe. The great beings, the prajapatis and co-creators, the great manus who um, fostered the uh, appearance and the development of the human race, these were all disciples of Ishwara. They weren't disciples of a representative of Ishwara, but of Ishwara himself. Now, of course, as we are evolving, we have many teachers. These are called specifically in Sanskrit upa-gurus, subsidiary gurus, gurus that lead to the one guru. The very term sad-guru, sat is God alone. The sat-guru is not one who reveal God, no, God reveals himself. Satguru is a guru that is God. I've had friends in India that would write at the top of letters, Guru is God. Well, that is more, as Swami Shivananda would have said, that's more 
uh, emotion rather than true devotion because it's completely backwards. It isn't that the guru is God, it's that God is our guru. Vyasa says this very thing, commenting on this 26th verse. His purpose is to give grace to living beings by teaching knowledge and dharma. That is, God himself can teach us knowledge and dharma. Now, he can do it in various ways. He may bring books into our life that teach it. And he may bring people into our lives that will either teach or affirm it. But ultimately, he will have been the teacher. If we want to put more of a point on it, here's what Shankara says when he comments on what Vyasa has just said. Here are his words. There is no other but God to give the teaching which is a boat by which they can cross over the sea of samsara. And Shankara is the greatest philosopher India has ever produced, as Goraknath is the greatest yogi India has produced. And Shankara continues, he teaches knowledge and dharma to those who take soul refuge in him. So it isn't just the idea that everybody can become a disciple of Vishwara. Only those who take total refuge in him may do so. Then Shankar continues, For all the kinds of knowledge arise from him as sparks of fire from a blaze or drops of water from the sea. Obviously, that's why Patanjali says, being unconditioned by time, he is guru even of the ancients. Buddha said that all teachings and all teachers are like fingers pointing to the moon. Their sole purpose is for you to look at the moon and see the moon. And he specifically says, and once you see the moon, you don't look at the finger anymore. You and I go to school. We learn subjects. We don't bring our grade school teachers along with us for the rest of our life, do we? So also, the human teachers are always secondary. And primarily, we misunderstand, they are secondary. For us in the West, we have learned most about yoga through the writings of Paramahansa Yogananda, a great master himself. He has written in his autobiography about a great teacher, Yogi Raj Shyamacharan Lahiri Mahashai. The Yogi, the Yogi Raj wrote this in a letter to a disciple. No one does anything. All is done by God. The individual that seems to be the guru is only excuse. Remain abidingly focused on that divine guru and this is blessing. When someone asked Yoganandaji about a disciple, he said to them, I never speak of people as my disciples. God is the guru. They are his disciples. Worthy human teachers are like elder brothers, elder sisters, who teach us, who help us. It often happens in very, very large families, that after a certain number of children have been born, then the mother says to the older ones, 
look, you're going to have to take care of these children. You're going to have to feed them. You're going to have to bathe them. You're going to have to teach them how to walk, how to talk, because I can't do it. I know this because my grandmother, who had 15 children, had to do that very thing. So again, we're not denying the value of these great ones, great ones that should be saluted and should be honored. I spent time living with Swami Shivananda Saraswati. He was a god upon the earth. And yet he used to say, I abhor gurudam. By gurudam was, he meant, that is, the substitution of a human being and given to a human being the love and devotion and loyalty that should be given to God, who was our only goal. Sri Ramana Maharshi said in one of his discourses, only the supreme self, which is ever shining in your heart as a reality, is the Sadguru. I hope you don't think I'm sort of laboring the point, <laughs> maybe even beating it to death. But you see, for over half a century now, friends of mine have had their lives ruined by unqualified gurus who look very good, but who prove to be unworthy, and by their own mistaken attitudes and dependency upon these gurus. A true guru was Swami Yatishwarananda. He was vice president of the Ramakrishna Mission. In fact, I heartily recommend his magnificent book, Meditation and Spiritual Life. Now here is what he wrote to one of the people that he had indeed taught meditation to, and of whom he was a personal guide and counselor. Here are his words. We are really not gurus. By this he means all the human beings that function in that office. Let me start again. We really are not gurus. We bring the message of the guru of gurus. What service you can get from me, you will. But please turn to him for light and guidance, for peace and blessedness. As you yourself are finding, human beings are not good enough. The Lord, the guru of gurus, alone can give us a shelter, the illumination, and the bliss we need. Now this is the way a true worthy, a true son of God, speaks to those whom he is leading toward the light. And he is leading them toward the light, and therefore next to God, they should receive the greatest valuation and honor. Swami Yatishwarananda was in the spiritual lineage of Sri Ramakrishna, the greatest and most influential teacher of modern India. So I would like to read you two statements of Sri Ramakrishna and then ending with such a great one, we can finish this podcast. First, he said, a man cannot be a guru. He who says of himself that he is a guru is a person of poor understanding. And then finally, this. The more you will advance, the more you will see that it is he who has become everything, and it is he who is doing everything. He alone is the guru.
and he alone is the spiritual ideal of your choice. He alone is giving jnana, bhakti, and everything. Therefore, to that universal absolute guru and refuge and goal, we should all bow in reverence. Om Tat Sat.